and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an assessment of Ukraine's military and how long they can hold out against the overwhelming Russian onslaught and Putin's brutal tactics of targeting civilian using Chechen and Syrian shock troops along with mercenaries. Joining us is Peter Bergen the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. A vice president at New America Foundation, he is a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. He has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues, and his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, The Biography, and we will discuss his article at CNN why Putin will regret launching this war, in which he interviewed an American general who had trained Ukrainian soldiers and special forces. Then we'll examine the influence of money from Russian oligarchs on American politics and what the reputation washing that their donations to American museums and charities buys them, and speak with Ilya Zaslavsky, a Russian-born anti-corruption activist countering post-Soviet kleptocracy. We will discuss the willful blindness of much of our political and business elites in not recognizing Putin for who he is long ago while happily accepting investments and donations of dirty money. Then finally we'll get an update on the rising price of gas at the pump as President Biden announces a ban on importing Russian oil, vowing that, quote, Ukraine will never be a victory for Putin and that, quote, we will not be a part of subsidizing Putin's war. Joining us is Tom Closer, the Global Head of Energy Analysis at the Oil Price Information Service at IHS Market, who for over 40 years has been reporting and analysing downstream liquid fuel markets with a special focus on North American refining and marketing. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Peter Bergen, the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president at New America. He's also a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, a biography. And he has an article at CNN, Why Putin Will Regret Launching This War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Bergen. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And already, apparently, the two Russian generals are being killed. The latest is General Vitaly Gerasimov. The CIA is estimating that between 2,000 and 4,000 Russian troops have been killed. Of course, uh, the Ukrainians are 
suffering more. We don't know the death count for their troops, but the Pentagon saying that the UN estimates are at least five times too low. It's more likely that about 2,000 civilians are being killed and 10,000 injured, but 61 hospitals have been put out of action by the Russians. 200 schools have been destroyed, 1,500 residential buildings. So it doesn't seem, at least to me, Peter, that Putin is going to back down, even though Lavrov will be meeting with Ukraine's foreign minister on Thursday. I don't see him losing face, do you? No. I mean, and, you know, uh, I'm not an expert on Putin's psychology. And of course, um, you know, there's been plenty of reports that, you know, he's more cut off than before. And, you know, the pictures of him at the 20 foot table sort of speak for themselves in terms of his interactions with other people. But you mentioned the CNN.com piece, you know, I interviewed Major General Repass, who was the former U.S. uh, commander of special operations in Europe. He's been advising the Ukrainian military for some period of time, uh, and both in advice role and also in a sort of education role supported by the U.S. government. He hasn't talked to the media uh, really at all. He told me his whole life he's been trying to keep out of the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN. So this is a kind of new role for him. But he uh i'm on the i'm the chairman of the board of the global special operations uh, foundation and he's on the advisory council and he i reached out to him and and he um gave us gave me a pretty you know um fulsome report of where he thinks things are going and you know i think the bottom line is that he believes that putin has bitten off more than he can chew uh he doesn't have enough he you know putin may win the war in the short term but he doesn't have enough troops in theater 175,000 approximately to hold the territory, even, you know, a good chunk of Ukraine, let alone the whole country. He does have some particular goals in mind. Um, One of them is he wants to get fresh water to Crimea. Uh, I hadn't realized this before I talked to Major General Repass, who's who's retired, Um, that the groundwater in, in, in Crimea has sort of dried up because of uh, a particular canal that the Ukrainians closed off when Putin took Crimea. And so uh, that's a very important goal for um, Putin is to uh, essentially restore fresh water to Crimea, which apparently has happened. Um, you know, why are the Ukrainians fighting so well? According to Major General Repus, um, you know, basically since 2014, when um, Russia took Crimea, uh, the, you know, the Ukrainians have really sort of got better training and President Zelensky fired the previous kind of old guard who were sort of Russian style generals and has brought in new blood, many of whom have fought the Russians in in Donbass. He also fired the previous defense minister and brought in apparently a very competent defense minister. Um, And so the level of training, particularly with the Ukrainian special operations forces, is, is, is much improved. And according to a report in the Wall Street Journal in the last day or so, it's the Ukrainian special forces that are inflicting a lot of of the damage on um, the Russian forces in the front lines. So Putin, of course, has a history of bombing the Chechens in submission and the Syrians into submission and creating a desert and calling it peace. So when do you think he's going to stop? Is he going to... 
it looks as if he's taken, he's certainly taken all the coastline on the Sea of Azov. So he's now he's, he's, he's linked the Donbass with Crimea, and as you say, he's opened up the canal so that Crimea now gets fresh water as it used to before the Ukrainians shut it off. And it looks like he's also going to take most of the coastline all the way through to Moldova or Transnistria, where he has a garrison. So it looks as he's in the process, at least, of making Ukraine a landlocked country. Yeah, and you know, uh, again, quoting Major General Ripas, who's you know spent a lot of time there um, in Ukraine. You know, he, uh, I mean, it's his view that Putin has the ability to uh, take all the cities, or he has the. I, I'm going to quote him directly. He has the time and the mass to take Ukrainian cities, but not. Um, he says, you know, when you look at the map of Ukraine, you see all the kind of red territory the Russians have taken. He said that's quite misleading because really there's plenty of white space in between a, a lot of the cities, which is not controlled by the Russians, villages and towns uh, that they don't control. And the Ukrainians will likely mount an insurgency, which either has been pre-planned or, or will be organized. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that that's what he anticipates. Um, now, you know, could Putin put more troops in theater, uh, you know, very possibly. Can he, apparently he's running, running, run out or running out of long range precision missiles, which means, which has implications for the amount of civilian casualties that he'll inflict uh, because they're going to default, according to Major General Repass, to multiple rocket launchers, which are not as accurate um, and have the capacity to inflict um, a lot of damage and turn the cities into rubble, uh, you know, kind of quoting him again. So, you know, I, I look, I, I think Putin's actions, you mentioned Chechnya and Syria, they, they sort of speak for themselves, his modus operandi, he doesn't care um, about, uh, you know, inflicting large numbers of civilian casualties. And um, why would he stop, uh, given the fact that he, he clearly has the capacity to do more, and uh, doesn't seem particularly swayed by the various actions that have been taken against him hitherto. And again, I'm speaking with Peter Bergen, who's the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president at the New America Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst at CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, a biography. And he has an article at CNN, Why Putin Will Regret Launching This War. So now the U.S. and the U.K. are going to be cutting off oil, and the E.U. have said that they could cut Russian gas by two-thirds and end reliance well before 2030. So that seems to be the only response we can have, right? Obviously, the no-fly zone is off the table because it could prompt a nuclear war, and Putin has already threatened that. So do you think that that escalation in terms of creating financial pain on Putin? Is that going to get to him? You know, I, I personally, I doubt it. I mean, I think the history of uh, punitive sanctions against authoritarian leaders doesn't suggest uh, that they're particularly effective. I mean, look at Saddam Hussein during the 90s. He, he, his, his actions, you know, I mean, what, the sanctions immiserated the Iraqi population didn't really affect his calculations. And look at the sanctions on Kim Jong-un, um, you know, they, he continues with his nuclear program. 
uh, certainly the sanctions, you know, tough sanctions on Iran got them to the negotiating table on the on the nuclear issue in, in 2015. Um, so, you know, they sometimes can work, but I think on a, uh, they often don't really work. And I mean, Putin has plenty of resources and, you know, there's been a lot of sanctions on him and his immediate inner circle uh, already. So this is amping it up. So I don't, yeah, I mean, they, I'm sure they'll have some effect, but, uh, you know, are they going to radically change Putin's mind about this? I, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about that. But I mean, one thing that is happening and could happen, and obviously there's a pipeline of additional weaponry into Ukraine that can be stepped up, um, you know, without putting American boots on the ground or having a no-fly zone, as you mentioned. Um, you know, the co- apparently, according to Major General Repass, um, you know, what, what Ukrainian ground commanders all want are um, stingers, SA-7, you know, uh, anti-aircraft weapons, anti-tank weapons. They, they know where the enemy is, according to him, but they uh, often don't have the means to to kind of counterattack. So um, that that's certainly a possibility where, you know, and, and that clearly seems to be happening. I mean, according to a report on CNN, there's uh, some, you know, base in Eastern Europe somewhere where, you know, there's a lot of these weapons are being funneled into Ukraine and uh, the costs can keep escalating. And, you know, if we look at the Afghan war in the 80s, you know, there was a point at which the Soviets concluded the cost was too much. It was at incredibly high cost. You know, the official Russian death count in that war was 15,000, which I'm sure is a massive undercount. And certainly at least a million Afghan died, Afghans died, maybe two million out of a population then of, uh, you know, 15 million plus. And the country was, you know, largely destroyed. So, I mean, that obviously that was over a 10 year period. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, the Soviets did respond to costs at a certain point. I mean, we I, we can only pray that nothing like that happens in, in Ukraine. So I'm not. I'm not saying that there isn't a point at which the costs are too much and the benefits uh, don't look too good because we can look at back at recent Russian Soviet history and see that that was the case in Afghanistan, which was very important to the Russians because, um, you know, there was a pro-communist government that, you know, that they wanted to sort of maintain there. And it was a way of signaling their resolve, uh, you know, to hold on to their possessions in Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, there has to be somewhere where the costs are outweigh the benefits. I, I don't know where that point is. Um, and I doubt very many people have great insight into where, what Putin's uh, kind of level of pain threshold is. Um, but right now, clearly, that's not the point we're at. Well, it does, though, point to the fact that, you know, Donald Trump held up the Javelin missiles in trying to shake down Zelensky in the, in the infamous phone call that led to his second impeachment. Um, yeah. And you th- you certainly have to ask yourself, Peter Bergen, that, you know, had those weapons got in earlier and, and had these other weapons that are now the Germans are now sending them in after ha- having resisted doing so, it seems like the weapons are coming in pretty late. I don't know whether they had the time to train. They certainly would have had more time to train and prepare uh, earlier, don't you think? Well, you know, I asked... General Repass uh, a version of that question. And he said, look, it's not too late. I mean, the weapon, you know, the, he said, look, NATO's uh, getting its act together slowly and it's not a, you know, Article 5 NATO war. So the kinds of logistics uh, networks that would be in place if that were the case aren't, don't exist. But, and there isn't a, prop, a universal communication system between the Ukrainians and and outside supporters that, that, uh, that 
that he also sort of says is needed. But, um, he, you know, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, clearly Trump did delay those shipments. I, 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 it's hard for me to assess it, you know, what military impact that had, if, if any. And certainly, you know, Trump has said that he said two days before the invasion that Putin is savvy and a genius and, you know, Mike Pence over the weekend tried to make some political hay out of that. I don't think very effectively sort of saying that there's no room in the Republican Party for a Putin apologist, which, of course, is, you know, somewhat ironic because, um, you know, Pence was nowhere to be found when Trump was president making, you know, genuflecting before Putin at every occasion. But clearly, Pence feels that there is some political opening here for him to distinguish himself from Trump. I don't think it's going to work. Um, after all, Trump was able to pay hush money to an adult film actress um, during his presidential campaign the last time around. He was able to denigrate a gold star family without any political cost. So it's not like he, uh, you know, the fact that he was cozy with Putin, I think, is going to really pose any real political problems to him. And of course, Trump has, you know, changed his tune and is referring to what's going on as a Holocaust, and it wouldn't have happened under him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And well, it is let me let me add that, Peter. He that? said, let me add that he said that he would send in F twenty two Raptors disguised as Chinese warplanes, yeah, and well, then sit back and watch and bomb the s out of the Russians, and sit back and watch the Chinese and the Russians beat up each other. I mean, this is like having a toddler in the White House. Well, I mean, you know, he did go to a military-style boarding school, but that's his only brush with the military, as you know, and, you know, he, he got five deferments from Vietnam. So, you know, Trump is, you know, no one can take him seriously. He's a military strategist, um, and obviously that was a kind of fanciful notion. But it is an interesting question why uh Putin chose now to invade rather than when Trump was in office. After all, Trump had you know, made it very clear that he despised NATO. He, he told advisors he was thinking about pulling out and he's doing a lot of things that Putin was, you know, must have been very happy about. And I think the, 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 the debacle of the pullout from Afghanistan by the Biden administration fed into this, because if you look at when did Putin move 90,000 Russian troops to the Ukrainian border two months after the total withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. So surely this figured into his calculus that the United States was in withdrawal mode, that he probably could get away with this, at least in his own mind. Of course, that backfired totally. And NATO is now stronger than it's ever been, probably since uh, 9-11, when it invoked Article 5 after the attack on New York and Washington. Um, and, um, you know, and, and Germany, you know, think back to Trump always berating the Germans to spend more money on GDP, spend more of their GDP on, on, on their own defense. Well, that's happened. And every NATO country is, uh, you know, um, seems to be energized by this and either sending weapons or spending, spending more money on their own defense. Um, and in places like Finland or Sweden, Finland, which has long been, you know, a military non-aligned nation. A uh, solid majority of Finns now think, are thinking, or want to join NATO. Finnish parliamentarians have even debated this question. And so the whole thing is sort of, if the intent was to splinter NATO um, and undermine it, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has achieved quite the opposite. So just in the last minute then, Peter Bergen, do you think, though, that this is also a wake-up call for the entire world community, for the United Nations, for world leaders, how can we live in a planet where just one person 
can threaten the entire peace and threaten the annihilation of the entire planet. I mean, he's threatening nuclear war uh, yeah. with 5,000 nuclear missiles. His, his acolytes on state TV are saying, if Russia is not to be great, then who needs the rest of the world? This is frightening, and this is unacceptable. Do you think anybody was going to start organizing some kind of regime where one, one man whose mental state is uncertain can threaten the entire globe? Well, but I mean, you know, we've been here before, um, and you know, I mean, uh, I think uh, I think part of this raises sort of interesting philosophical questions about, you know, I, I think there's been a delusion that sort of like, you know, world history is moving in this sort of direction towards, you know, everybody agrees that liberal democracy is the best way to to you know to organize themselves, and there are clearly people who don't share that view. Z, Putin, Orban. Erdogan, I mean, a bunch of authoritarian leaders that have sprung up uh, in recent years or, or become stronger in recent years. And, you know, we will see how this plays out. I mean, there's uh, there's there's liberal democracies that obviously don't want Putin to succeed. Um, how much are they willing to pay? Uh, I see in California where you're sitting that the average price of a of a gallon of gas is now over five dollars. And that has, you know, something to do with what we're seeing here unfold in Ukraine. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, I mean, it's a question of what costs do you have with the West are willing to 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 incur, and what costs is Putin willing to incur? And I mean, and we, and I, no one can really predict either of those things because the most uncertain of enterprises is going to war. Uh, just think about the U.S. Iraq war. I mean, you know. Uh, President George W. Bush you know, was able to overthrow Saddam in Iraq in three weeks, but the war went on you know, for a very long time with all sorts of unexpected consequences for Iraq, for the United States, for the region. So, so we'll see. And I, you know, I hate to say something so obvious, but I mean, it's just, it's just very hard to know how this will all play out. Well, Peter Bergen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Bergen, who's the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president of the New America Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography. And he has an article at CNN, Why Putin Will Regret Launching This War. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the influence of money from Russian oligarchs on American politics and what the reputation washing that their donations to American museums and charities buys them. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ilya Zaslavsky, who is a Russian-born anti-corruption activist countering post-Soviet kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ilya Zaslavsky. Hello. Uh, good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're quoted in an article in the Washington Post where you basically suggest that 
a lot of the Putin's oligarchs over here in the United States are being very, very effective and donating to charities, etc., and art museums and the Kennedy Center. And in effect, you make the argument that these donations are like an entrance ticket to the Western establishment. Stalin could not dream of getting such influence in broad daylight. So let's expand on that, if you will. My understanding is that a lot of these these wealthy oligarchs who are close to Putin have given lots of money. We can go through the list if you like. But the MO, their modus operandi, is that they hire these lawyers from very prestigious law firms like Jones Day. Apparently, the word within the law profession is they call them white boys because they sort of whitewash the reputations of those who are uh, giving millions and millions of essentially dirty money to these prestigious institutions like museums, etc. So is that the modus operandi? Honestly, uh, if it was just about dirty money and just about their reputation laundering, that would be horrible, but not uh, uh, alarming uh, on a global scale. Uh, for, those problems are... Uh, you know, critical, but the more fundamental problem is that these oligarchs bring uh, Putin's influence uh, into the U.S. They bring p- political influence, uh, and uh, they bring propaganda narratives coming from Putin's regime uh, about various things that are important to the Kremlin. For example, uh, they, you know, very often we saw in some of these programs and uh, in interviews around these cultural events, uh, various activists saw anti-Ukrainian messages. Uh, we saw messages, you know, uh, saying that sanctions don't, don't work and that uh, let's not have another Cold War. And, you know, who is responsible for Second World War and Soviet Union uh, exaggerated role in it? Uh, and who are Nazis today in Europe? And, you know, um, so essentially Kremlin has been using those um uh, and entrance tickets to the establishment to peddle its narratives and uh, try to influence uh, policymaking in the West. And that's what I find most dangerous. Well, haven't some of these same oligarchs created close relationships with Donald Trump and the Trump family? Dmitry Ryabolev, the Russian potash billionaire, he sold Trump a property down in Florida for over twice its value. And Abramov, the owner of the Chelsea Football Club, he is close personal friends, and his ex-wife are close personal friends with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Well, uh, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, want to comment on uh, specific relations. Uh, I think they've been covered enough uh, in uh, domestic press, and I don't think I can add anything uh, specifically to that. Is there, I, is there a strategy behind it, though, Ilya? Uh, I mean, he was president I, of the United States, for God's sake. Wouldn't that give you some influence? Well, of course, uh, Putin's uh, Kremlin and uh, its uh, oligarchs, they, they have been looking for all possible avenues of influence. And these oligarchs have been catering to ad hoc tasks, uh, you know, uh, asked by the Kremlin to find uh, avenues of influence uh, in the West. So... 
what I'm concerned is that by associating with respectable, respected establishments uh, like academic institutions, think tanks, universities, uh, museums, art galleries, they get a way to uh, access and co-opt uh, wide, uh, uh, wide circle of people. So it's not just like these individuals that you listed. It's it's a whole array of people, you know, who sit on the boards of Russian companies, who speak in favor of, you know, different narratives that I talked about, who act as de facto lobbyists or, you know, uh, Putin understanders. So that ha- has been happening a lot in Western countries and hopefully will be changed with this war against Ukraine that w- we now see. Uh, but I argue that a lot of this uh, access and cooptation uh, contributed to the West, you know, uh, appeasing uh, Putin and uh, uh, allowing such horrible war to happen. Uh, my guess, if we were more vigilant and had stricter due diligence before, the, uh, it might not have come to this. Well, why do you think the West was so blind? I mean, for example, Victor Vexelberg gave $100,000 to the Clinton Foundation. He also gave much more to the Museum of Modern Art and MIT. But President Clinton was president of the United States, and he had to know from American intelligence that Putin rose to power by blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing about 300 Russian citizens in order to get Russia into the war in Chechnya, that he allowed Russian citizens to die in the theater that was under attack when the Chechens seized it because he he ran the operation uh, where they pumped in an aerosol version of fentanyl and he didn't provide the antidote for the innocent Russians, all of whom died. So this is a man who clearly does not care about his own people, and you can see the brutality with which he's killing Ukrainian civilians. So why is it that Americans have never really understood, and particularly our political leaders, who they've been dealing with, with Putin, at the same time accepting money from his cronies and the Siloviki? It's a great question. Uh, I think, you know, uh, this Russian oligarch, who I prefer to call Kremligarch, uh, because they are not really independent from the Kremlin, and uh, they are not private businessmen, but they are really cash handlers and operatives for the Kremlin. They've been giving money to a- across the aisle and across the political aisle, and they've been, you know, supporting uh, both far right and far left, and some uh, established uh, politicians and former politicians. So they've been giving money actually everywhere they can, and uh, the, the, this process has been normalized. Uh, Somehow there, there's been, you know, a, uh, a whole uh, area of people, groups of people, invested interests in the West, you know, some energy people uh, who benefited, say, in Germany from Russian gas. There have been law firms and public relations uh, and lobbyist people who, you know, have a direct interest in uh, uh, milking Russians, you know, for their cash uh and their operations in the West. But uh, also, I mean, there was a whole uh, area of people who honestly believed that, you know, by doing trade and uh, uh, business with Russians, you you could, you know, convert them to 
Western capitalism, although in reality they were converting the other side to their uh, corrupt way of uh, doing business, uh, in my view. Uh, so it's a, it's a, a complex process, which you know reminds me in a way of what was happening with trade and relations with uh, Nazi Germany in early uh, to mid 1930s, before you know the Nazi regime showed its uh, real face. So in a way, we're reliving um, 1930s, but then it was. Uh, you know, liberal capitalism versus communism and fascism. Now it's liberal capitalism versus corrupt capitalism, state capitalism um, in the Russian and other kleptocratic style. Uh, so uh, I think uh, you're right uh, that you know these uh, these things should not be normalized and they should be questioned now on all sorts of fronts, uh, starting from higher levels of due diligence and the proper enforcement of existing laws to, you know, maybe uh, new new laws and new regulations uh, and maybe dismantling of offshore system of anonymous accounts of um, uh, beneficial ownership, which is impossible to, to check. Um, and uh, just, you know, ethical codes for former politicians uh, not to engage uh, with, with corrupt regimes like Russia so there is a whole process of so-called Schroederization uh, in Europe, where you know former politicians like Gerhard Schroeder would, or um, UK uh, peers from the House of Lords would, you know, join uh, boards of directors of Russian companies. That should be stopped, and uh, there should be guidelines and ethical codes to guide uh, those processes. And again, I'm speaking with Ilya Zaslavsky, who is a Russian-born anti-corruption activist counting post-Soviet kleptocracy. Well, I'm reminded of a play by Bertolt Brecht called The Resistible Rise of Arturo We, that was a parody on, on the rise of Hitler, but they reduced Hitler down to a, a protection racketeer in the Chicago markets where he was in charge of the cauliflower concession and it reduced Hitler down to the small man that he really was, in spite of the fact that he was a massive uh, dictator on the pages of history, responsible for the deaths of a, you know, almost 100 million people. So our tendency is to sort of look at people that, that are powerful and dominate the news and dominate history, rather than look at who they really are as human beings. And do you think that's a fault across the board with Putin? Because the record of his cruelty and inhumanity is manifest, and it goes back a long way. I agree, absolutely. I mean, uh, there have been investigations into him, especially in the Russian language, and some of them, you know, being translated a uh, long time ago. Uh, but they fell on deaf ears uh, here because, uh, you know, the political class was... Uh, you know, had not de had no demand from its own society to deal with this question. Honestly, I don't think it's just the fault of politicians uh, in the West. I think it's a vicious cycle that we have where our press is limited to write about uh, oligarchs um, for the fear of uh, libel issues and, uh, you know, frivolous uh, use of uh, Western courts against uh, the press, you know, to silence them. That's what many Kremligars have been doing. And then 
there is no knowledge and no demand to deal with these family gas in the society because of lack of coverage. And because of uh, lack of demand, the politicians are, uh, you know, have their interest elsewhere. And it's only when some catastrophe happens and everyone can no longer avoid looking at this catastrophe like Russian aggression against Ukraine. That's when, you know, everyone is forced, politicians, press, uh, the society, they're, they're forced to look at these problems. But it's some, very often it's too late and too little. And we shouldn't really operate in that way. We should have some better um, mechanisms to look at things around the world and listen to different activists before, you know, these problems turn into catastrophes. So one way is to definitely encourage uh, freedom of press in this country and to create, uh, I think it's a matter for both private industry and for the government. So there should be better anti-slap laws, uh, so-called, you know, um, uh, laws which prevent uh, frivolous uh, use of Western courts against uh, First Amendment and against investigations. Uh, but at the same time, private sector and society, civil society, could do much more in terms of funding, you know, to protect journalists, to to maybe create a, a joint trust or fund for, you know, dealing with libel issues. There are some precedents already, but we should we, we should have more. And what I noticed is that as soon as some of these people are placed even on, not even on sanctions, but on the warning list, like Cards, uh, Countering American Adversaries for Sanctions list, which was published in 2018. It was not proper sanctions list. It was just a warning. Even that allowed the press to talk about some of these individuals. And that, in a way, then, uh, you know, brought attention of the society and uh, policymakers. So it's a complex problem, which we now should deal with at a much higher level and in a concerted way. In a concerted way. Well, but Putin is a problem for the whole world. It's almost incomprehensible that one man whose mental state is very uncertain is able to threaten the entire world. He's essentially threatening nuclear war with 5,000 nuclear weapons. And his propagandists on state TV, his favorite TV anchor, recently said, if Russia can't have its place in the world, who needs the world? This is frightening. I mean, what is going on within Russia itself? We know that one of the more appalling things that we learned from the the Ukraine war is that a young, I think she was Ukrainian or Russian woman in Kharkiv was under bombardment and she was calling her mother in Russia saying that the bombs are falling on me and the mother said, oh, that's just propaganda. She was believing state TV. So is there any way to undermine Putin from within with the truth? You, I'm, I'm very glad you brought up that example. It just shows how sophisticated Russian uh, propaganda and brainwashing uh, has been and uh, how dangerous that is because people end up living in, like whole societies, end up living in a parallel uh, uh, made-up reality, uh, which can lead to aggression. Um, I think uh, it's a, it's a horrible lesson for the whole world to learn, and especially Western countries who can, you know, now devote more funds and efforts to counter this problem. But it's a it's a generational issue. I have many friends, you know, in in Russia and and contacts 
everyone is complaining how parents, especially parents, you know, people um, and, 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 and grandparents, people, I would say, above 50, uh, uh, how they are just, you know, they've been uh, very vulnerable to new technology. They, they just, because there was, the people were not brought up in a society with critical thinking and there was lack of information. And all of a sudden, there is a tidal wave of information and easy access, supposedly easy access to all sorts of information. But the truth is, uh, Russian regime created uh, a field where there is uh, access only to uh, distorted information. Uh, so, you know, uh, on any um, attack, say, against Ukraine, Russians would receive not one narrative, but like a dozen. But all of them would be anti-Ukrainian and crazy in a different way, but still anti-Ukrainian, you know? And so people would sometimes lose sense of uh, objectivity and say, oh, there is no objective information at all. But still, human nature is such that they would believe something, and they would end up believing uh, some of those narratives. Uh, so they, in, in a sense, what I see is that in Russia, people have a, a ugly choice of bad information to choose from. Uh, toxic and, you know, um, really um, brainwashing. Um, so uh, we we have to, and in the West, it's the problem is not as big as in Russia, but it's still considerable. Uh, that's why, for example, I was um, surprised in a good way that, uh, for example, a country like Finland has uh, introduced classes uh, for, for students, for uh, school children, to learn how to think critically for themselves, to learn how to deal with information from young age, to make their own opinion, and uh, not to believe, you know, everyone that uh, or anything that is on the internet or on TV. And I think we need to have the same, you know, uh, system introduced uh, in the West, and we should carefully think how to make people, you know, um, think for themselves and think critically. So um, it's um, and specifically with Russia now. Well, I hope that one day, you know, it's the experts have been saying that Russian regime has been uh, its TV was fighting against the fridge, and at some point, uh, you know, the fridge is is losing so much. I mean, the economic conditions are so bad that even this uh, parallel reality will collapse. Uh, I mean, we had the same thing in Soviet Union, maybe with less technology. And so um, hopefully the collapse of the economy is so evident and the bad, uh, you know, uh, rulership of Putin is so evident at some point that, you know, people will no longer believe their TV. But it's a very uh, sickening process. And uh, uh, I don't know how long it will take. Um, so we can only, you know, hope that um, th this is resolved quicker than, than than later. Well, just in the last minute, Ilya Zaslevsky, what can you do? What can be done though to break the compact, the spell, amongst Americans who support Putin, particularly on Fox News, Tucker Carlson, and in right wing circles here, because they believe that Putin is standing up for Christian family values. And, I mean, an example of that is that the BBC, a while back, interviewed a young pro-Russian soldier 
fighting in the Donbass. And he was asked what he's fighting for. And he said, I'm fighting against the Ukrainian government because they're going to force me to marry a man. I mean, that's the level yeah. of the propaganda. But I mean, that, that resonates amongst the right wing here in the United States. Well, they should understand that uh, this is just a one-sided view presented uh, by Putin's regime, feeded into the, that particular, you know, avenue. But in reality, Putin's regime is almost lacks any ideology. Its its ideology is cynicism and uh, money and violence. They have been supporting left-wing radicals, right-wing radicals. They have been faking themselves as liberals when necessary. Uh, especially in early 2000s, they you know have been. Uh, repudiating some of the Soviet past and then extolling it. Uh, they, uh, they've been uh, saying bad things about both right-wing and left-wing politicians in the U.S. Uh, so it's really ta very tactical and cynical and never consistent. And one, one should just spend more time and, you know, expose all of this and honestly just maybe translate some of the uh, investigations and uh, articles from Russian because not all Russian journalists or activists, you know, are, are bad. There are, there are many people in Russia and now outside of Russia who have been exposing Putin's regime. Just we, we, we need to have more trust between journalists, between a civil society of, of the two nations uh, to overcome this uh, bloody dictator. Well, Ilya Zavlovsky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ilya Zaplavsky, who's a Russian-born anti-corruption activist countering post-Soviet kleptocracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the rising price of gas at the pump as President Biden announces a ban on importing Russian oil. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Closer, the founder of the New Jersey-based Oil Price Information Service, where he has covered downstream oil markets for over 40 years. Tom has analyzed crude oil, refined products, and gas liquids for parts over four decades, and he has written commentary for Market Watch, and is a regular guest commentator for Bloomberg Financial Markets and Marketplace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Closer. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tom. And President Biden today announced that we are banning imports of Russian oil, although we don't actually import that much of it. And the UK are going to phase out their oil imports. And the president said that he will not be part of subsidizing Putin's wars. And then he went on to warn the American public that there'll be rising gas prices, but that defending freedom is going to cost. So what's your sense of where it's heading? I just filled up yesterday here in California $5.40 a gallon. So I think the national average is, what, $4.17? Yeah, it's actually surpassed uh, 4 20 uh, this afternoon. And when we published the numbers overnight, it'll probably be close to four and a quarter. 
you know, one thing about oil markets and the trading in oil markets, which is a tremendous asset class these days, is that they tend to be anticipatory. So uh, what what President Biden did today was kind of uh, what has happened in the logistical chain over the last eight days, where you have a de facto ban on Russian imports, not just to the United States, but a number of European countries. I know we're talking about it in China, perhaps Korea. And uh, it is quite punitive to Russia because they export, uh, you know, uh, somewhere around 4 million barrels a day of crude oil and refined products. And uh, they are not able to export out of the Black Sea for a while and some of the Baltic point ports. And at these prices, it's going to hurt. So what about the Europeans? The Germans haven't joined in. Uh, Europe relies on imports for 90% of its gas and 97% of its oil products. And Russia supplies 40% of Europe's gas and a quarter of its oil. Uh, Europe is in a lot of trouble right now. I mean, it's not just on the price of gasoline or diesel. It's on the price of natural gas and electricity. Now, they had an episode earlier this winter where they probably thought they were ready for renewables a little bit quicker uh, than what it required, and they had high prices. But nowadays, the numbers are tragic. I mean, they're paying the equivalent of $450 a barrel for their natural gas, and I'm not even sure what their electricity costs. Uh, They do need Russian oil uh, and uh, refined products on short notice. And there's no way in the world that other producers can sort of pitch in in a matter of days, let alone weeks, uh, to to cure that. So I understand the German position. Uh, You know, the reality is that if you're a a multinational oil company or even a European oil company and you're doing business with Russia right now, uh, you're getting a scarlet letter attached to your name. And there's repercussions and they're being pilloried for it. So uh, Europe deserves our sympathy and longer term, they can work out some things to be less reluctant or excuse me, less reliant on Russian oil. But there's not much they can do short term. Well, the EU have said that they can cut Russian gas by two thirds and they can end their reliance well before 2030. So. I take it they've been underway for some time. They've been building LNG terminals. The U.S. has been exporting LNG, and so are the Qataris, right? Uh, And they get, what, 20% of their gas from Norway, although that's depleting. They get, what, 27% from, maybe it's the other way around, from Algeria. What other sources could come online, and in what kind of time frame? Well, certainly, you know, the price of... uh, Natural gas in the United States is, for all intents and purposes, you know, somewhere under five dollars, even when we skyrocket in price. So there is going to be a lot of LNG moving from the states to Europe and to other markets. I did hear that some companies are saying they've already pre-sold a lot of the cargoes in the production, you know, for most of the decade. So again, there aren't any quick fixes. The problem is what to do in the short term. In the long term. I understand it. in the long term, they can turn to wind and other renewables like uh, solar. There was a problem this winter, though. You know, energy transition uh, is one of the, the words that gets bandied about a lot. Uh, but people need to realize it's not a free lunch. You know, we've become addicted to fossil fuels and uh, 
you know, getting off of it is probably like a lot of people getting off of uh, OxyContin if you don't have a, a plan for it and you don't realize that it's going to uh, require some sacrifices and some great expense. And again, I'm speaking with Tom Closer, the founder of the New Jersey-based oil price information service where he's covered downstream oil markets for over 40 years. So, Tom, obviously there are people living on fixed incomes and low incomes and any rise in the, in the gas price at the pump is going to hurt a lot of Americans. But there was a poll recently, I think it said about something like 70% of Americans would rather have lower oil prices than support Ukraine. If that's accurate, and we're going to be seeing such horrible stuff on our TV screens of the civilians being murdered by this crazy dictator Putin. Do you think the public's attitudes are going to change or, or are we just going to end up being, unfortunately, selfish in terms of wanting our comforts as opposed to trying to help the Ukrainians? Well, I, I hope those polls are inaccurate or I hope those polls were steered to provide certain answers, because I'd like to think that the public recognizes Ukraine for what it is. It's a plundered country uh, that's uh, going through great, great pains right now. Uh, the, the problem is, and you know, we've seen this in this country for a long time, uh, gasoline and fuel prices are almost treated the way the guns are. And, uh, you know, there's it's like a God given American right to have cheap fuel, regardless of the consequences. And normally the consequences might just be, you know, in the old days, air pollution or, uh, you know, more recently, uh, you know, carbon problems. But when the consequences are, uh, in effect, empowering and funding uh, someone who is, you know, trying to be uh, an evil Peter the Great or whatever. I'd like to pe think people will will stand a little bit taller on this subject. Uh, gasoline is is it's strange. It, it treats people at a visceral level, uh, more so in the other states as opposed to California. But they really do believe that it's kind of an entitlement to drive as much as you want. And to pay is little. I mean, we haven't increased the federal gasoline tax since 1992. So uh, I would like to think that people are, are going to coalesce and uh, realize that some sacrifices need to be made. And, you know, we need to pay, uh, albeit make sure that people don't profiteer off of what, you know, the scourge, the scourge of Ukraine is doing right now with the uh, uh, you know, the Russian-Ukraine invasion. So what does this say, though, Tom Closer, about the possibility of transitioning to renewables and having an all-electric economy with green electricity from wind and solar, etc.? If a lot of us aren't ready to pay a little more for gas at this point, I can't see us even being ready for what we would need for a kind of radical shift to green energy. Well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things there. N number one, the shift was always going to be difficult. The, the energy transition needs to be planned. And to a certain extent, Europe, and again, this was before Putin invaded Ukraine, was guilty of probably, uh, you know, not planning it well enough to go to wind and solar. There were times where the wind wasn't blowing and the sun wasn't shining. Uh, but ultimately, 
you know, this is going to be something that catalyzes uh, electric vehicles and that sees people migrating toward electric vehicles. I mean, we all have questions about the grid. As someone who's lived in the Northeast through blackouts and at the Gulf Coast through blackouts, we all have questions about that. And we need to make to make sure that when we do go to electric, uh, we've got uh, some standbys. But uh, the transition is going to take time and, and it's going to be painful and it's going to require sacrifices and it's going to require a kind of a coming together of companies that are in oil and gas and that are going to be working on decarbonizing the economy. Uh, so it's no easy feat. It's not going to be limited to this presidency or the next presidency. Uh, you know, we've been on fossil fuels for well over 100 years. And I don't think that we can get weaned off of them in a matter of months or just a few years. So just in closing then, Tom Closer, where do you think gas prices are going at the pump here in the U.S.? They're going higher. Uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't say that this will be the new normal. But in California, uh, you're going to probably be paying somewhere between five fifty and $6 a gallon, particularly if... Uh, uh, the investment banks are right, and we're headed to 150 to 180 dollar crude. I might mention that the bigger problem right now, and people don't have the same sort of vitriolic reaction to it, are diesel prices. Uh, diesel prices are going to, uh, you know, probably five dollars nationally, and unlike gasoline, where uh, you know most motorists can get upset by it. Diesel prices are felt by the trucking companies who can almost immediately pass it on through um, uh, through surcharges for freight. So that's going to infiltrate every nook and cranny of the American economy. And instead of trying to fix blame for it, we should probably work on fixing the problem. But uh, prepare to pay more if you have a diesel vehicle. Or if you ship anything, and most of the goods and services that go through our country are powered by diesel fuel, whether through trucks, locomotives, and God knows with agriculture, where we're already seeing very, very high prices, they're going to see their uh, rates for planting and harvesting go up because diesel is really the hot global commodity. Well, Tom Clotter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Tom Close, the founder of the New Jersey-based Oil Price Information Service, where he's covered downstream oil markets for over 40 years. Tom has analyzed crude oil, refined products, and gas liquids for over four decades, and he has written commentary for Market Watch and is a regular guest commentator for Bloomberg Financial Markets and Marketplace. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.